Let me just acknowledge from the beginning that criticizing Jesus sounds like an odd title for a message series. But what we're going to do is look at some of the different criticisms Jesus received during his earthly ministry, and we're going to try to understand what they teach us about his priorities, about his character, about his mission, and all of those things that we learn should have an impact on the way we live our lives of faith. I think that will become more and more clear with each and every message that we look at, and so let's just go ahead and dive into the first one. If you've got a Bible, I want you to take it and go with me to Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to read together verses 14 through 17, and because um, I'm on a little bit of a time schedule this weekend because um, this is also Brian Tabor's last weekend with us as our worship pastor, and we want to honor him at the end of the service. Uh, Go ahead and stand with me, even if you're still turning. If you're able, go ahead and stand with me, and I'm going to read Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. Then John's disciples came, and that would be John the Baptist, by the way, so there's no confusion. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or the, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and on the hearing of his word. Now, as we begin, and let me tell you, this message was a little difficult for me to write, but in the end, what it came down to for me was to keep it really simple, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend my time giving you the three observations that were overwhelming to me as I studied this passage of Scripture. If you'd like to take notes, I want you to write down the first thing that... uh, I thought about this passage, and that is just, and it's going to sound odd, but I want you to write down somewhere, a strict and disciplined life. Write that down somewhere, a strict and disciplined life. When I read this story, one of the first things that comes to my mind is the fact that when we meet John the Baptist in the Gospel of Matthew, we see very clearly that he is a unique guy, a unique individual. In fact, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 2 say this about John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then, as you go a little bit further, you see in John chapter 3 and verse 4, this about John the Baptist. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Let me just cut right to the chase and give you my observation. I think it's safe to say that there weren't a lot of light or a lot of lighthearted moments in the life of John the Baptist because he was a very focused and a very disciplined man. I don't know how much you know about John's background, uh, but you can read uh, all about it in Luke chapter 1 on your own. But let me just tell you this. The Bible tells us that his conception was extraordinary, and the Bible tells us that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was even born. That's how special he was. He was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was even born. 
There was a moment when an angel appeared to John's father, Zechariah, to announce to him that he was going to have a son because he and his wife, Elizabeth, were, were way past the age when people had children. And this is what the angel said to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 and verse 17 about John. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And that tells us the one thing that we probably already know about John the Baptist, and that was that he was born so that he could prepare the way for Jesus. He was a very special man. In fact, Jesus said that there was no greater man that lived than John the Baptist. But even though he was born for such a special purpose, I'm, I kept being drawn back to the fact that John came in an unusual way. First of all, he came preaching in the desert. That's not really the place that I want to go to listen to a sermon. If you go back again to John chapter 3 and verse 1, the verse begins like this. In those days, this is going to seem in, without having any importance, but bear with me. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came. Came. We'll stop right there. And the word that's used in the original language of the New Testament for came is a Greek word, a very specific Greek word that was always used to indicate an official arrival, or in other words, the arrival of someone who was very, very important. And yet, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea. He didn't come preaching in the, the grandest synagogue or on the busiest street of Jerusalem or in some special spectacular place. His pulpit was in the desert. The second thing that reminds me that John the Baptist came in an unusual way is that there was nothing compelling about his appearance. Again, John, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 4 says, John's clothes were made of camel's hair. I used to have a camel hair sport coat that I really liked that really looked good on me, friends. But I don't think that's a description of what John was wearing. His clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. He was survivor before survivor ever, ever came on television. And what that says to me is that no one, absolutely no one, would have been drawn to John the Baptist because they looked at him and thought, you know what? He looks like a guy I just like to hang out with. He probably looked like a crazy man to most people. Nothing compelling about his appearance, even though he came as an incredibly special God-ordained man for a special God-ordained purpose. Did you know there's an Instagram account? I don't know how many of you have an Instagram account. I have one. You ought to follow me because I'm really funny on it sometimes. <laughs> but did you know there's an Instagram account called Preachers in Sneakers? Preach, not Preachers in Sneakers, Preachers in Sneakers, just an N in between the two words. And it's an Instagram account. Go home and look at it. It's an Instagram account that highlights the extreme amount of money that many preachers will spend on their appearance. I'm talking about their clothes, their shoes, and their accessories. It began when one day a guy was watching a worship service on YouTube, and he noticed that the lead singer or the worship leader in the worship band was wearing a pair of $800 sneakers. You can see the, the tag up there so you can find it if you want to look at it. 
And so from there, he just began posting pictures of different people who were what we might think of as celebrity pastors. How sad is it that we even have that phrase in our culture today, celebrity pastors, who with their 800 sneakers or their $1,000 hoodie or their $1,000 sweater or their $1,200 fanny pack or their $1,200 belt buckle, and I'm not making a word of this up, were highlighted. And so here's my point. John the Baptist was as far away from that as you could possibly be. John the Baptist would have never been viewed as a celebrity anything. And he would have never been highlighted on something like preachers in sneakers because he lived a sparse life, a strict life, and a disciplined life. And he had a message of repentance that demanded that you feel sorrowful for your sin in a way that leads you to a complete change of your life. That's who John the Baptist was. Now, here's why I've taken the time to say all of that. Because that's the way John the Baptist was. He would have attracted followers who were drawn to that kind of life and to that kind of lifestyle. He would have attracted followers who would have been all in when it came to being strict and disciplined and living a sparse life. And that life, or I guess I should say that lifestyle, would have become a central part of their faith. So it's no surprise then in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 14 that we read, Then John's disciples came and asked him, him being Jesus, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And this happened at a time when John the Baptist was already in prison. You know, if you know the story of John the Baptist, he was put in prison where he was later executed. And we're in Matthew chapter 9, but if you look back at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. And even before this time, John has already deferred to Jesus. You can go to John's gospel and see in John chapter 3 and verse 30 that one day when an argument broke out between the followers of John and some of the Jews about Jesus, who was now involved in his vocational ministry, this was what John said in response. He, talking about Jesus, he must become greater, I must become less. In other words, John had already tried to send his disciples to Jesus so that they would follow Jesus, he had already basically said to them, listen, it's time for you to stop following me and start following him, Jesus, because he's the one we've been waiting for. He's the real deal. He's the Messiah. Nothing about John the Baptist was compelling because of the life that he lived and his appearance and the message that he preached. But what we need to understand is when it comes to our discipleship and when it comes to our faith, a lot of people will knowingly or unknowingly place a higher emphasis on some spiritual or religious nuance or some spiritual or religious preference and elevate it to a place where it becomes a badge of faith to them and a test of fellowship with other people. And you might meet somebody who says, you know what, I can't be in fellowship with you because you don't fill in the blank, whatever, like I do. Or I can't go to your church because at your church, you don't practice or you don't follow whatever, fill in the blank, 
what I think is most important. And oftentimes we're talking about things that are nothing more than a preference, not things the Bible says that we are to do or not to do. In this case, for John's disciples, I believe in my heart that it was that strict lifestyle and fasting was really a part of that for those who were following him. Listen, I've experienced this in my life as a pastor over and over again in every church that I've ever served, in every church that I've ever served, including this one, probably this one, much more than my other churches because of the size. I've had people who went to church here who came to me and said, we're not going to church here anymore because you don't like we do. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. If that describes you in any way, shape, or form, then you need to hear me saying, as your pastor who cares about you, as your shepherd who cares about you, that's not a healthy way to pursue faith. Write down the second observation. Clearly, John's disciples identified more with the Pharisees than they did with Jesus, but both were wrong. Clearly, John's disciples identified more with the Pharisees than they did with Jesus, but both were wrong. And again, I would go back to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 14, the very first verse of our text. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it, notice this, that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, to understand the problem, you have to understand that the Pharisees were the chief enemies of Jesus, and the reason why they were the chief enemies of Jesus was because they hated him. Not all of them, but the majority of them. They hated him for multiple reasons, but the biggest reason why the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, hated him was because everything about his life, friends, the way he lived, the way he treated people, all people, the things that he taught, Everything about his life exposed them. And when I say exposed them, I mean Jesus exposed the truth that the religion, the morality, the spiritual lives, whatever you want to call it, of the Pharisees was nothing more than a pretense. And by pretense, I mean it was nothing more than just pretend. It was all external to be seen by other men. And the attitude they had toward fasting, I guess I should say the attitude and the approach they had toward fasting is a great example of this. Because the Pharisees in Jesus' day believed that you should fast twice. Everyone say twice. Twice a week. Even though the Old Testament only prescribed one fast per year. And that was on Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees, their their practice and what they thought any righteous or religious person should do was to practice twice a week. Because that gave them the pretense of looking devout. That made them feel like when other people saw them and they were fasting that they would think, wow, how holy are they? How religious or righteous are they? You know, the three main expressions of a devout life of faith in Jesus' day for the Jews were fasting, giving, and praying. Those were the three, fasting, giving, and praying. And so because of that, the Pharisees had created routines and rituals for all of those things that were designed primarily to be seen by other men. In fact, 
As you got your Bible open in Matthew chapter 9, let me hear your pages turning back to the left until you get to Matthew chapter 6. Now, when we get to Matthew chapter 6, we're right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the most well-known sermon that Jesus ever preached. Now, I want you to look at the very first verse of chapter 6. In Matthew 6, 1, Matthew writes, or Jesus says, rather, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then he starts to list the things specifically that you shouldn't be doing just to be seen by men. The first one has to do with giving. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their full reward or rather their reward in full. So he's talking about the Pharisees because that's exactly what they do. Time doesn't allow us to read any further down. Go down to verse 5. Now he's talking about prayer. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. That's the common word he uses here. So what Jesus is doing is he's calling the Pharisees what? Hypocrites. Verse 5, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Go down to verse 16. Now he's going to talk about fasting. Note this, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. So the three things that really marked a devout Jewish life were We're giving, praying, and fasting, and Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, in just a handful of words in the Sermon on the Mount. How how do you think the Pharisees reacted to that part of the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, sometimes you think, I like that preacher's sermon except for this part because it was a little too personal. And surely that's the way the Pharisees felt about that message So even though John's disciples were drawn to John the Baptist, even though they were drawn to his message of repentance, even though they chose to follow him as a result, they were still at least on some level steeped in the routines and rituals of their past, things that Jesus exposed as a sham because external routines and rituals will always be a hollow substitute for genuine heartfelt worship and faith. So you know what this all comes down to really at the end of the day? This whole passage that we're looking at, it's not very long, these verses in Matthew 9, verses 14 through 17. What this all comes down to is this. If we were to paraphrase it, you could say one day, the remaining disciples of John the Baptist, who's now in jail and has already said, you need to follow Jesus, the remaining part of this little cult-like group of people that still were saying they were disciples of John came to Jesus and said, how come your religion is so different than ours? That's what it all comes down to. How come your religion is so different from ours? Because their religion, like so many people, including many people today, was all about routines and rituals. But Jesus Listen to me close, friends. Jesus was bringing something new. He was bringing something new. And he made that clear in verses 15 through 17. Look back there in Matthew chapter 9. Let's just look at it again. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. 
No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. It really says two things in those verses. The first thing he says, and you might want to write this down, is he says, there's a time for fasting, but this is not the time. There's a time for fasting, but this is not that time. That's what Jesus means when he shares what he does in verse 15. I've told you before as we've studied the Bible that in in Jesus' day, weddings were incredible celebrations that would last for seven days. Seven days. And the last thing that would happen at a wedding was that anyone would be somber or anyone would be sober or anyone would be serious. The way that you would be if you were fasting, especially if you were fasting because you were repentant or mourning over sin, that wouldn't happen at a wedding. And this illustration of the wedding that Jesus is using talks about the bridegroom and Jesus is the bridegroom in his own illustration. And so to be somber and sober and serious and sad because you were fasting while you were at a wedding would just be wrong. Even more than that, it would be inappropriate, especially when the bridegroom was there and you were supposed to be celebrating the bridegroom. That's why he says, how can guests of a bridegroom mourn when he is with them? The problem was that John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting as a routine or a ritual, but that's all it was because it wasn't connected to any kind of reality. It would be like someone coming up to me after church tonight and saying, Pastor, I fast twice a week. And I would say, wow, are you sad or sorrowful twice a week? And you would say, no. And I I just fast twice a week. And then I would say, well, do you know that fasting in the Bible, a great deal of what we have about fasting in the Bible is connected to mourning? And you would say, no, I didn't know that. And I said, well, what about prayer? Do you fast so that you can make more room in your life to pray? And you say, no, I just fast twice a week. And I said, well, what about drawing near to God? Do you fast twice a week so that you can spend your time in purposeful ways to draw near to God? And you say, no, I just fast twice a week. You see where I'm going with this? And that's what the Pharisees were doing. That's what John's disciples were doing. There are times to fast. But Jesus is saying this is not the right time because fasting isn't something you do as a routine just to try to look more religious. I look back at my Bible at Matthew 9, 15, and Jesus says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? And then he says, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. And this is so powerful, friends, because the word Jesus uses for taken there in the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word aporio, and it means sudden removal, or it means being snatched away violently. And let me ask you a question. Isn't that what happened to Jesus in the end? And Jesus is saying, there'll be a time to fast, but this is not that time. This is a time for celebration because I'm the bridegroom and I'm in your presence. There'll be a time 
for fasting because there'll be a time of mourning when I'm gone, but this is not that time. And just so there's no misunderstanding, Jesus is not against fasting. He's not saying fasting is a bad thing. The Bible teaches that fasting is a good thing when it's connected to sorrow or mourning over sin or prayer or the intentional purpose of drawing close to God. But fasting as a routine or a ritual to try to look more religious is a waste of time. Just like coming to church on the weekend just to try to look more religious is a waste of time. Here's the second thing that stands out to me. Jesus, with those verses uh, 15 through 17, Jesus is bringing a new practice of faith that is not compatible with the old. In other words, he's bringing a new way of believing, a new way of thinking, and a new way of living. And to try to connect it to everything that was in the past is as foolish as sewing a patch of untrunk cloth on an old garment or pouring new wine into old wineskins. And I don't think either one of those require a lot of explanation. If you sew a a patch of of new cloth on a a garment, then as soon as it's washed, that patch is going to shrink and it's going to tear away from the garment and both will be ruined. If you pour old wine or new wine in an old wineskin, as that new wine begins to ferment and expand, it's going to cause that old hardened wineskin to burst and you're going to lose everything. So the bottom line is this. The disciples of John the Baptist, along with the Pharisees, were practicing a religion that was based on routine and ritual, not the heart. And Jesus was bringing something new. He was bringing a righteousness or a rightness that was based on an honest, humble, genuine relationship with God. And that's incompatible with religious routine. Write this third thing down. Let's get personal. What's your plan for following Jesus? What's your plan for following Jesus? The only right answer to that question is to recognize the foolishness and the futility of trying to be right with God on your own through your own efforts, no matter how religious those efforts may seem. Look at this verse on the screen from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's in my NIV Bible. Look at it in the contemporary English version. You were saved by faith in God who treats us much better than we deserve. Somebody say amen to that. This is God's gift to you and not anything you have done on your own. It isn't something you have earned, so there is nothing you can brag about. Trying to promote yourself as more religious or more devout through external works is a waste of your time. The only way you can live in a right relationship with God is to come to him in complete honesty and humility and say, God, I have failed on my own. God, my life is broken by my sin. I need your love and your grace and your mercy to experience forgiveness and healing because I'm helpless on my own. And I hope you've done that in your life. But if you haven't, and you think you can check the box that you're a Christian today simply because of some ritual or routine you followed, then you need to pause and you need to get your life right with God. 
Because that's not how it works. That's the first right step. That's the only first right step. Makes me think of the parable Jesus told in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14 about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Uh, This is how it reads. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Here it is. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. And one, a tax, and the other, a tax collector. So one, a, a man who is supposed to be very religious, and one, a man who is supposed to be a miserable sinner. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Listen to what he says next. I fast twice a week. Remember what I told you about the Pharisees? And give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And friends, that's where following Jesus starts. And I'm going to say it again. If, If you think it started for you in any other way, then you've made a mistake. A serious mistake. And once it starts that way, it just continues that way. Because in our Christian lives, we continue with that same attitude of honesty and that same attitude of humility in pursuing Jesus, in drawing near to Jesus, in depending on Jesus, in worshiping him, and on and on and on. So that you never come to a place in your life as a Christian where you say, I've arrived. Or when, it, when you fall in the trap of just going through the motions because you think it's performing Religious, religious ritual that makes your faith real. And so the criticism we see in our story today teaches us the importance, the absolute necessity of pursuing a relationship with Jesus that's real. It's not a performance. It's not a religious performance on your part. It's a relationship that's real. I hope all of us can see and understand the importance of that. Let me just close like this. And the team can get ready to come. There are a lot of different ways you can describe the Bible. The Word of God. The Book of God. The Revelation of God. A lot of different ways. But until we all come to a place where we look at the Bible and understand that it is a mirror. In that we see ourselves in the pages of the Bible... We're going to struggle in our lives of faith. We're going to fall short in our lives of faith until we come to the place where we see the Bible as a mirror. Some Christians, and I know this to be a fact, think that because they've listened to a good, strong, biblical sermon that they have somehow grown in their faith just by being a listener. Some Christians think that because they they hear a sermon that touches them or convicts them or gives them some kind of emotional response, or even beats them up, that they have somehow grown in their faith. But until you take what you hear from God's Word, and you hold it up in front of your life, so that you can apply it in the most personal way to your life, you're just acquiring more information. And when I read Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17, I see myself. I see me. Because I can sometimes be guilty of thinking it's the things I do that make me a devout Christian. And so, 
Are we, are you, am I guilty of looking at other people who claim to have faith sometimes and thinking to ourselves, even if we don't articulate it in these words, why is your religion so different from mine? Like, why isn't your religion as good as mine? Why don't you do what I do? And so I'm asking you as we close, do you see yourself in that story tonight? And if you do, what's your response going to be? What's your plan for following Jesus? Thank you, Lord, for a time to study your word. I pray you would take it and apply it to our hearts in a way that ultimately changes our lives. We love you. And we're so grateful for your love and your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. And we're so grateful that we don't have to earn a right relationship with you. We just have to come to you with honest, humble, broken lives and say, I need your help. I'm hopeless and helpless on my own. And then we need to allow that same honesty and humility to guide our faith every single day of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.